welcome. Sweets. <laughs> I'm David Kirk. David, we need a funeral dirge as our opening music here. Yeah, Logan, we're going to have to put something a little more dour in. So I am David Kern. This is Close Reads. And I am joined by Tim McIntosh and Angelina Stanford, whose voices you just heard. Wow, that is how messed up today is. You forgot to give me top billing. I can't uh, even. All right, we need to start over again. <laughs> if we do that, it's too risky. We can't, we can't do it. We push, push through. Keep going. I'm um, going to try. Let me grab a tissue. <laughs> so we are here to talk about uh, Murder on the Orient Express, the movie episode. Now, we already did this for an hour and a half earlier today, and then we started another show, and we have had continuous technical difficulties. So we are, um, at this point, our fingers are crossed. We're knocking on wood. Um, we're doing all kinds of other things that involve rabbit's feet and salt and so forth. Um, and we're going to give it a go. Hopefully, we will have an episode up to you tonight. <laughs> so... Um, if not, we're, we're all on the floor curled up in, in uh, the fetal position. Uh, I'm normally there, so it's fine. I mean, it's just, oh, okay. you know, business <laughs> as usual over here. <laughs> <laughs> we, we should probably uh, we should probably talk about dessert now, huh? <laughs> oh, that was the smoothest segue ever. I mean, I was just imagining when I'm on the floor in the fetal position, all I want is dessert. No, that's um, not a bad move. You're like, okay, crazy emotional woman. I'm going to throw some sugar at her. Not a, that, was, that was a solid move. You are a solidly married man. I, Bethany, well done. <laughs> well, uh, it is Thanksgiving coming up, and we talked, a far, we talked at length, probably far too long in the original show, about different things that we like and dislike about Thanksgiving. Know, basically, I took notes on your pie. So, yeah, we went on a long time about this. So, what I want to do quickly is uh, have each of you share... Uh, one thing that you like to bring to Thanksgiving that um, that's kind of maybe different than what you'll see at most Thanksgivings or that you grew up with or something like that. So Tim, I'll let you go first on this. And I, th- I think you said you even have notes or a, what, a recording of your parents describing this that you're going to post? Yeah, I, my parents make the best turkey I have ever eaten. And that's not being partial. It's the best turkey I've ever eaten. There's nothing worse than dry turkey. Everyone just kind of like crunches it down like uh you know the chevy chase national lampoon christmas vacation it's just (laughs) awful but everyone feels it's their duty my parents turkey is so good and i and there's two tricks to it that anyone at home can do and i'm going to post a facebook video that takes 60 seconds about how you do it okay so for your family because of your parents expertise Turkey is more than like a uh, a vehicle for for gravy, is what you're saying. It's more than a vehicle for gravy, hmm. thanks to my parents' tender care and attention of their turkey. Now, did they? Did you grow up eating this spectacular turkey? No, it did changed. They... I, I almost like remember the year that it changed. It was just like, what happened? 1984. <laughs> no. <laughs> It was much later than that. Oh, okay. But it, it, it was a pronounced change. I just wanted to just remind you that you're older than me. <laughs> you were successful. Tread lightly, <laughs> Mr. Kern. Tread very yeah, lightly. Whatever goodwill I just earned a minute ago talking offering dessert. Uh. But as we did determine earlier, Tim is the oldest. And you're the oldest girl and I'm the youngest and I'm the, therefore I'm the troublemaker. So Angelina, what about you? You have, you're not a big, you were not a big Thanksgiving food fan because you are basically a foreigner. Uh, and therefore you have strong views on what is good and what is not good about Thanksgiving food. So uh, what is it that you bring to the, to, to a Thanksgiving dinner? 
Well, first of all, thank you for acknowledging my inherent foreignness because this is actually important to me. It really, it really is. It explains a lot about me if you understand that I'm not actually Southern or American for that matter. But uh, yeah, I don't dig on the Thanksgiving and I don't dig on the Thanksgiving food. Um, yeah, so that's a whole other story, which we went on for like 45 minutes in the other, the lost episode that someone somewhere has piratedly downloaded. But Probably uh, Kenneth Branagh. Well, that's my, you know, that's my theory. But anyway, um, no. So what I like, what I like to bring, um, I like to make a carrot souffle for Thanksgiving because, well, for many reasons, it's extremely tasty. But the other reason is it just makes me feel super fancy. And I don't have a lot of moments in life where I feel like a fancy person, but that is one of those moments. I got to say, I'm very much in support of the person who brings the fancy dish to Thanksgiving because Thanksgiving (laughs) is kind of like Christmas, a little fancier, right? Usually, like people will, yeah. like maybe maybe some people get brave and they do a goose or something, but right. like thanks Thanksgiving is it's it's foods of the same basic color, <laughs> um, like the palate. You know, it's there's sweet potatoes and then there's potatoes and then there's bread and then there's cornbread and then there's stuffing and then there's probably something else involving gluten and then there's turkey and there's gravy and everything and then and then of course cranberry, which neither of you like. So. I support the person who brings the fancy dish to Thanksgiving. I'm very much in favor of this. I can't even tell you what it means that David the foodie just gave me a thumbs up on my carrot souffle. (laughs) This might be the best moment of my life right now. You're really touched by this. Deeply. Well, I want to try it. So you need to, you need to share the recipes. It's an accessible recipe or is this all in your brain? Oh no, it's in a book. Okay. Uh, Uh, Yeah. (laughs) That's a whole other story. Everything I know I've learned from a book. (laughs) So it, as soon as you started talking about this recipe, fireworks started going off outside our office. So it's, it's Friday night. How and, wonderful. Yeah. And so they do this thing this, this weekend where they light the Christmas tree in town and they shoot off fireworks and everything. And it, so it's 8.30 now back at the office and the fireworks started going off as you started talking about your souffle. So this seems like a sign that everyone out there needs to make the Angelina souffle for, for, this, for a holiday this year. Uh, I'm for that. <laughs> Well, my thing I like to bring quickly is a buttermilk pie. I'm sure some of our listeners have heard of this, but neither of you had heard of this, right? No, but I was very intrigued. I will trade you a carrot souffle for a buttermilk pie. And Tim, I'm sorry. I, you know, I'm, I, I think you're awesome, but I'm going to let you have that turkey all to yourself. <laughs> Aw, thanks. <laughs> Tim's going to be eating turkey sandwiches for, for a month. Yeah, I am. <laughs> so a buttermilk pie, the idea was uh, once you know, in the fall and in the, in the, in the, to the winter, you didn't have as much produce. So it didn't used to be as easy to go buy strawberries at the gr- grocery store as, as it is now. Um, and the same with, uh, uh, you know, you might not want to use your... Can you hear the fireworks? Yeah, I can. Okay, yeah. It sounds like oh. muted popcorn. Yeah. <laughs> oh, nope. I thought you were just rubbing your hands across the table. Oh, that's what that is. Okay. Yep. That nope. That is uh, that is that is fireworks. There, I've got a perfect view here. Like my window, I can see the purple and the yellow. It, it did startle me at first, though. I gotta the say, the close read stars have lined up for this episode. I'm gonna <laughs> perk up stat. <laughs> <laughs> well, so the idea was you couldn't find produce, so you made do with what you had. So you, people usually had buttermilk, sugar. Um, and then you could add eggs to it. I mean, buttermilk, sugar, and eggs are the essentials. Make pie crust with lard and butter and flour and so forth. Um, but the idea is it's kind of a custardy pie, and then you bake it so that the top gets a nice brown crispiness, and then this custardy uh, inside that's got somewhat of a, te- a texture of like a like a pecan pie or something like that. And then um, 
it's got a nice flaky crust. So that's, it's another good thing. I'll post that as well. Um, and the recipe I use is by, um, by Lisa Donovan, who's one of the best pastry chefs out there. And I just, uh, I just adapt it a little bit and you can add anything you want. So you could add fruit or like a bourbon or, or vanilla or whatever to it to make it more interesting, but it's pretty good as is. It sounds really good. I'm really intrigued by that actually. So, okay. How do you say the name of the nut that falls from the tree and we make into a pie that I just said? Acorn? Pecan pie? Yes, acorn, acorn pie. Acorn, that classic Thanksgiving staple in the Macintosh home. No one acorn. can say no to it. It sounds amazing, and I really hope you send me a piece. Just overnight it, pack it really good. So we've got no pecan people here? <laughs> no pecan people here. All right. Um, I'm sure someone out there is offended right now. Good. I'm really glad we can all still be friends now. Yeah. These are watershed moments in our relationship. I don't know if y'all realize that. <laughs> I have a chart. I have been filling it out since day one. You have no idea. The number of, the number of watershed moments seem to be increasing, I got to say. Um, <laughs> and a lot of it has to do with my little weird obsessions. <laughs> a lot of them have to do with food, I feel like. Oh, uh, yeah. Also the food. Food and books. I'm very particular about food and books, okay? Not about most other things, <laughs> Hey, I as one should be. Those are two things that you know a person ought to be so, somewhat particular about. What? Those are the staples of life. <laughs> Speaking of being particular about books, let's talk about this movie. Let's talk about this movie. And okay. I know we're also like dying to know what each of us think. <laughs> well, the audience is dying to know what we think. And here's I'm going to give a, I'm going to give an introduction. There are three categories to just keep this conversation going. There are three categories of things that we are about to talk about. We are going to talk about the end of the book. We are going to talk about the idea of uh, uh, filmic adaptations in general, and we're going to start there. And then we're going to also talk about Kenneth Branagh as Hercule Poirot. So those are the three basic categories that we're going to talk about. That's what we focused on earlier, a bu- plus a bunch of other nonsense that is typical of our show. But we're going to try to focus on those three things and um, try to get actually get through this one. Um, but before we dive into that, I want to ask you the same question I asked you earlier, and I'm very curious to know if your word is going to change. But in one oh, word... Oh, wait, that's an option? <laughs> Sure. In one word, what would you, what word would you choose to describe Murder on the Orient Express, the movie? Tim, I'll let you go first. Lavish. Lavish. Okay. All right. And Angelina? Okay, but I want Tim to give me the exact same response that he gave me a few hours ago <laughs> when <laughs> okay. I seen this word. Okay. Tim, Tim, I'm about to test your acting because I want it to sound okay, natural. Okay. Also his memory. Yes. Oh, well, all of that too. Get into character. Get into, find the Tim McIntosh inside you. Okay, I'm ready. Okay, you ready? Um, I think I'd have to say boring. Ooh. <laughs> I think you may have overplayed Tim I on that one. I think you may have pulled a kind of brand one more time. Let's work it again. Okay. Are you ready? We're going to workshop it, guys. Action. Okay. David, you got to feed her the line. Okay. 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 Angelina, the line is Boring. I need it. I need you to think about how you say this. No, no, no. Okay. You ask her what the what the. Yeah, yeah. You gotta be. Gotta is. say the question. I need my cue. <sighs> okay. So, <laughs> hey, Angelina, what word would you use to describe Kenneth Branagh's Murder on the Orient Express filmic adaptation? Oh wait, wait. One word, David. This is unexpected. One word. Only one word, Angelina. Okay, wait. You can only use one word. Okay, let me think. I got a lot of words. I don't feel like we needed to practice the whole scene, guys. Okay, well, as, okay, as we know, Angelina has a lot of words, so I'm going to try to just find <laughs> one. Here we go. Okay, ready? Okay, wait, I got it. I got it. I got it. You ready? You ready? What is it? 
boring. Ooh. Oh, was <laughs> Timing, timing, timing was off, Tim. That was too soon. We've got This a- is what happens uh, when an actor directs his own movie. <laughs> all right, guys, listen, Angelina, I need you to play that a little more subtly. Okay. A little less obvious emotion. Okay. And Tim, I need you to take a step back from the emotional ledge a bit. <laughs> okay. I need you to imagine that you're giving the line while in a barn in the dead of winter. (laughs) And I need you to imagine that your dog has just woken up from a two-year-long coma. And that as you're out there, you are feeding it for the first time. That's what I need you to deliver this line like. So Angelina. Also, I'm going to take this Angelina character in a totally different direction right now. All right. Okay. All right. Basically, right now, we're workshopping our opinions on this movie, just to be clear. Okay. Because, so, you know, I'm just going to go with a less confident, like, unsure Angelina. Okay, ready? Ready? Okay. Hey, go Angelina, ahead. if you could use one word to describe Kenneth Branagh's adaptation of The Murder on the Orient Express, what would you use? What would that be? <sighs> um, it's okay. This is a safe space. We're not going to judge you for this. Safe space. Mm, okay. I can't promise our audience won't. Boring? Ooh. <laughs> That's what you would respond like if your dog just woke up from a two-year-long coma in the middle of winter? <laughs> That's how it felt, David. It felt oh. right. Oh. Tim, if you could not understand what I was feeding you with that line, I was showing you raw insecurity and vulnerability. I needed affirmation in that well, moment. I, wanna, I didn't want to come on too strong and... You know, if I gave you like a big Halloween ooh, <laughs> that could put you right back in the hole. <laughs> You've got to lure me out. You know, I need to be encouraged and affirmed. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Yeah, okay. Tim. Seriously, though. Um, <laughs> Angelina, boring. David, what was your word? Wait, but earlier you said you thought it was boring, too. I need to, I have to affirm myself. This is what it has come to. <laughs> yeah, his response earlier was, and I quote, yeah, I kind of thought I was a little boring too. Yeah, I did. I did. Um, so I will be feeding Tim his lines for the rest of this right. episode. <laughs> Tim, we're just going to get the trend, the um, the teleprompter out, and we're just going to type for you, and you just read it. Right. Um, <laughs> but I'm not going to let you interpret it and put your own spin on it. Not. You have to no. be true to it. And then I went to the grocery store and brought broccoli. What? Um, so my word was the word I, I was the word. But, B-U-T. Yeah. Um, so, and, we'll, and we'll, of course, we'll come to that. But let's, let's talk about these three, these three topics. And I think that these three topics that I mentioned already tie into the three words. I think it ended up being pretty good that way. So let's, let's talk about Kenneth Branagh first. No, let's talk about adaptations first. Okay. okay yeah. Angelina, you have, you have, you don't often like or even watch adaptations of or at least movie adaptations of books you love. Um, can you explain why a little bit about a little bit? Okay, so that is true. I ha- it's almost to a rule that I will not see a, a movie of a book that I love because I'm just too upset by it. <laughs> and so I've been thinking about why, why that is because I do understand that a film is a different medium than a book. And so there has to be a translation that occurs. There has to be a change, you know, interior the interior of a book is not going to work in a movie and a movie's good at visuals and, you know, they just do very different things. And so I'm, I'm okay with that. I'm okay with the translation. So I've been thinking about what is it exactly that bothers me? And that reminded me of a conversation I had with Tim a while back where I asked him if it was scary to be a playwright 
because essentially he's writing a collaboration with someone he's never met, mm, yeah. a director and an actor. And he said, yes. Uh, but that when he's writing it, he expects that the director and the actor will, will bring their own stamp to it, their own interpretation to it. And that when it works well, you know, it's really, it's magic and something greater is created than any of them could have made on their, on their own. So it's this great thing. Of course, when it doesn't work, it's, it's not magic, but my response to that was that I didn't think I could do that, that I thought the novel was my medium because I want to control the story. So I've been thinking about how maybe that's part of what happens when I go to see a movie. Maybe the director is treating the novel like this is a collaboration, right? Like, well, it's me and Agatha. We're working on this together, right? And, I, and, it, and it's expected and appropriate that I'm going to put my own stamp on this. I'm going to, I'm going to make it my thing. Hmm. Whereas I'm looking at it through, this is a novel and, and her work and her vision has to be protected. And I feel very protective of it to the point where when I see an adaptation, it's not that I'm thinking, oh, I don't like the spin you put. I'm thinking, how dare you? How, how dare you think so you can do this? When you talk, when you, when you say this, are you, are you talking about, am I correct in, in assuming that you're not talking about necessarily like changing plot points or whatever you're talking right. about the spirit or the theme Ab the, absolutely. the, the, the kind of like essence of the of the book itself Ab absolutely and so, so if an yes. author if the filmmaker doesn't understand that essence and find a way to to capture it in a in a cinematic way then then you then that's something that really bothers you Exactly. And, and, and sometimes I think it's that they fail to capture the essence. And sometimes I think that they think the essence doesn't even matter. So I'm reminded of an interview I read when the Narnia movies were being made and when the director there had made a, a decision to take the character of Susan in, a, in the total opposite direction than yeah, Lewis intended. I, I really, those movies, especially the second and third, really bother me. Right. And so there was some fan pushback against that because it was such a, I mean, it just completely violated everything Lewis was trying to do with this character. And his response was, well, that's Lewis's Narnia. This movie is my Narnia. And I was super offended by that because I feel like, well, if you want to tell your own story, write your own story. <laughs> don't, yeah. don't hijack his story. Yeah. What does it mean for someone's story not to be their own? You know? Right. Just make your own movie then. So, yeah. so I, I think that I'm bringing a lot of these assumptions in, but I am not a stickler like where it has to be point by point the same. Not, not at all. Um, and we tossed around some movie examples in the first episode. And I don't know how, how far you want to get into this again, but. Um, I'm, I'm really okay. For example, in this film, even though the opening sequence was not in the book, I actually liked it. I thought, oh, well done. They have very quickly established who the character is, how his mind works, the way he solves a crime, that he has attention to detail, that he anticipates how even the criminal will escape. Like he's always two or three steps ahead of everyone. Mm. Um, he yep. solves the way he solves a crime, the way he is as a character. So even though that wasn't in the book, I heartily approved of the opening because I thought, oh, it did what a movie does. It doesn't, a movie doesn't have all this time. And so it very quickly established who is this character. So you were okay with them making a choice that differed plot-wise because it was capturing or, or offering us the essence of what Christie was trying to do in the book. Right, and I thought that it, it, it translated nicely into what film does. Some of the sort of... He had some theatrical flares in that opening scene, uh, like with his walking stick um, and things like yeah. that, that yeah, I yeah. thought it captured him, even though it wasn't necessarily what you find in the book. It was a nice, it was a nice visual. A movie's got to have those visuals, and it was a nice visual. Now, Tim, you're a playwright, and you write scripts and things like that. Yeah. If you were working to adapt 
a work like this or any book in, at all. How would your feelings about that jive or differ from what Angelina's described? Oh, I, Wait, I'm just going to put you on pause there, Tim, because uh, in the original episode, Tim, I'm going to feed you your line again. You ready? You ready? You said, oh, oh, Angelina, that was a keen observation. <laughs> and you said that several times and I'm just... You're not really. Yes. Should- should we why, work- are you, why are you blowing me off so hard in this episode? Come on, do, man. You got to give me something. Do we need to workshop that line for you again, Tim? <sighs> Maybe we do. I think Maybe we might need to workshop nighttime Tim as a character. Because <laughs> <laughs> I kind of like daytime Tim a, like little daytime a little bit better. I think, a little bit better. I, I think all of us could probably have a different version <laughs> that we need to workshop for our nighttime versions. Yeah, we probably do. Um, so, okay. <laughs> I agree with what Angelina says. I mean, are you are you suggesting she's making a keen observation? Tim? I think that's a keen observation. I agree. Go on. I we did not talk about this in the first recording, but I want to bring it up now. Angelina, how do you feel about? Um, have you seen Shakespeare done when it's relocated in time instead of having an Elizabethan stage with Elizabethan costuming? What if they set Macbeth during World War II? How, how would you feel about something like that? Um, I, I don't actually find that problematic. For one reason, <clears throat> Shakespeare himself was pretty loose about the historical details and had contemporary costumes in some of his history plays. And uh, so I don't have a problem with that at all. Yeah. Yeah. I think that can be actually really interesting. I saw a performance of Julius Caesar, and they cast Julius Caesar as a woman. And I remember I was talking to my friends beforehand. We were like, how is this going to work? How is this going to work? And we went in and 15 minutes into the play when Caesar, well, Caesar appears a little bit later than that. But when, when Caesar first appeared, instantly we were all just thought, oh, this is a master stroke. Because they cast her as almost like a prime minister, not even a prime minister, like the president of almost a guerrilla nation like in Central America, that everyone was wearing army fatigues anyway. It was absolutely brilliant. And the reason it worked is because it was very much in keeping with Shakespeare's Julius Caesar. The spirit, it was very much in keeping with it, even though, obviously, it was a woman playing Julius Caesar. They, they nailed it. Nailed it. Hmm. Hmm. I, uh, I, like, I like the word essence. It, as we were talking earlier, I, that wasn't a word that we used, but it, it I, since since this morning when we recorded, that word came to mind, and I kind of like it for what a screenwriter can do because you can get the essence of something without getting the details of something. Yeah, you can still capture yeah. an essence without presenting specific details. Which yes. makes me ask now whether or not the movie that we saw captured the essence of the book. Well, and that's where I think we need to talk about, for example, the ending. And I know Angelina had some problems with the ending. I think we all had, I think we all were pretty similar in our approaches to this movie with maybe some, some differences of degree. Um, yeah. I, would you guys, would you agree with that, Angelina? I do. I was actually surprised. Um, I really was surprised. I thought that you in particular, Dave, were going to be a lot easier on the film than me. Like I thought we were going to come in here and I was going to be the real stickler and it's not like the book. And you were going to say something, and then you were going to basically lecture me and say, it's a film, Angelina, it's different than a book. And Well, I, I mean, I do think that, but I'm still, the essence argument is really important. So if I mentioned that I hate, well, I, did, I mentioned that I, the, the Narnia movies are, I'm, I have a real problem with them. 
in the second one, in the Prince Caspian one, they change so much about Caspian and Peter, for example, that it really ruins a lot of what Lewis is trying to do with exploring like medieval thought and what it means to be a leader and all these different things that he was doing in that book. And so in changing those characters to that degree, they, they messed with the essence of what the book was trying to do and what made it a powerful story. And that's the key. Like, what is it that makes the book universally powerful? And if you, re- if you take that out, then you've diminished the story itself. And I think that that's what, what can happen. I'm not sure that I think that's happened in this movie. I think there are moments when it teeters on that. And that's where I think maybe where maybe for our, for each of us, there's a difference of degree, but let's, let's talk about for a minute. Let's talk about some of the things that it does well though, if that's okay. Yeah, let's do that. I was actually just going to suggest that. Because Tim, you mentioned the word, the lavish and I mentioned the word, but, and for me, the idea is it's good at this, but not good at this, or it's bad at this, but it actually captured this pretty well. Um, and so, and that's true of almost every art, you know, movie. So I've kind of cheated, but, um, Tim, talk about this idea of lavish because it can be both not a perfect movie and still be a lavish movie. And that's what it was for me. It was an imperfect movie, but it was gorgeous to look at. It was sumptuous. Every detail of the screen was just pleasant to look at from the costumes to the sets to even the overhead, the overhead shots of the avalanche falling down. I just thought that was masterfully done. I just thought it the was train on the on the, mm-hmm. on, the, the train um, on the bridge on the bridge was just wonderful, and um, setting it right in front of the the tunnel. So you've got this great black landscape behind everyone. I thought that was beautiful. Also, I thought that that aspect of the movie I thought was first rate. Agreed. And the interesting thing about that is that I did not think it was just like eye candy, but I thought it was actually an an example of sometimes how a movie can do something better than a book. And so having the avalanche call, actually seeing the train derail, and then having it be on this bridge. So you have this tension, right? The, The sense of how precariously balanced everything is, which was one of the themes that the movie was trying to bring out was this idea of balance. Um, yeah. I thought that was actually a really nice addition and detail, right? Yep. Something that brought out the essence of the book at the same time as showing what film does well. Yeah. One of the things about the book is for all its quality, great qualities and for, the, for as much fun as it is, it's not necessarily a book where the stakes feel crazy high. That's very true. So, it's not a thriller. It's not a thriller. Right. It's more of a puzzle book. Mm-hmm. And, so, and he spends half the time thinking or just having these individual conversations. So they have to, they had to up the stakes a little bit. And I think being on the edge of this cliff where you see people looking out of it and having the darkness of the tunnel and the avalanche and little things like that, create that help create that tension early in the film that can kind of set, set the tone because we know there's not like, if you know anything about the the book, you know, there's not like a bad guy rummaging around the, on the train. There's not really a, well, there is, but there's not really one guy who's going to sneak around and everybody's in danger, right? Right. And right. Even if you don't know the story, you kind of get that sense right away that, that, that there's, it's not really that dangerous. So that they do, they do a good job of, of kind of increasing and upping that tension and the sense of the only thing I wish they'd done, I said this earlier is increase the cla- sense of claustrophobia because a train is a very tight space. Yes. And I think visually they could have captured that. We talked earlier, Tim, about how we both really liked some of the way they shot some of the things, like yeah. the way they did the scene, the way they shot the scene where they're 
gathering the evidence, like the pipe cleaner and the handkerchief, mm-hmm. and how they shot it from above. Because what they were doing is they actually created a replica of the original train. I, my understanding is, I could be corrected on this, some listener probably will, that they, they built it to scale everything. Like they, they made the same style of woodworking and they did the same dishes. They even tried to create the same menu and all those kinds of things. And so that means it's small. Like those compartments, those rooms, those hallways and, and things, those passageways are, are tight. It's tight, yeah. And a film, you know, even if you're building a set, these are big cameras. That's how you get such beautiful shots. Well, I mean, that's, that's an oversimplification. But they're big cameras and there's lots of people on a set. And so they did a really good job allowing us to see into that room in a way that allowed us to kind of take stock of what was in it. So if we were, being, if we were paying really close attention, we could have seen the handkerchief or the pipe cleaner or the, the note in the ashtray, yeah. right? Yeah. It's not, we weren't just dependent on the camera showing us exactly what Hercule Poirot sees. We got books, to discover books. it ourselves a little bit. Yeah, and they did. So I thought that was a really nice way of kind of doing what the book does. It, where? Well, yeah, absolutely. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, we talked earlier about how it it was a big challenge. This movie had a challenge. So I went in, you know, thinking to myself, "This is a challenge. It's going to be a, a challenge. This particular story is a challenge to adapt him because one of the things that a detective story is doing is it's." It's throwing a whole, it's like like an algebra word problem where they give you all this information that you don't need to solve it, right? They want to overwhelm you with information so you don't know where the real clues are. That's hard for a film because you're doing all these cut shots and obviously you're, you know, the the camera zooms in on something and then you notice it. It's much more difficult. So those long shots, especially from above, like you're saying, where we actually could see the whole room at one time. That, that was very well done and, and, a real, and a real challenge. And so even though that I thought the movie was kind of boring, I also recognized what a challenge they had not, for it not to be boring. It's just a hard movie to adapt. Not, I mean, a lot of action in it. Yeah, literally almost nothing happens in the book. Right. Like of, yeah. I mean, literally a guy dies at the beginning. That's something that happens. And there's a bunch of boring interviews. And then they talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. It's not, it's not even as much a procedural as like Law and Order. There's more action in an average law because at least they can go out and drive somewhere. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Oh, you're, you're right. You're right. Or they, they go to the lab, right? Or they interview someone on the streets and they, and they, when they, because when they go to that place on the streets, it feels dangerous, right? Feels and this like is why I did, I did not have a problem with the two like action scenes that they added. In, in the film, right? The chase scene and the yeah. gun being drawn because you have to do so. You have to externalize this some kind of way or it's just going to be unwashable. Yeah, yeah. Now, okay, let's talk about... Well, let's, anything else that we want to mention that it does pretty well? And I don't want... I mean, it does a lot well, of Well, we talked about Johnny Depp that we thought he was really well yeah, done. Johnny Ratchet Depp. was yeah. well done. Yeah, okay, talk about that. So what, what's one of the big things that you liked about Johnny Depp? Go ahead, Tim. You had a lot to say about that. Yeah, this, is, this is superficial, but I love that the first time that we see his face, we don't recognize... We don't see any cuts and scars. And then we kind of move to a medium shot. And we're like... Oh, he's got a scar above his eyebrows, the first one that I noticed. And then mm-hmm. we push him a little bit closer, and his face is all cut up. Mm-hmm. And I thought that that was just first-rate filmmaking. You know, like it's kind of revealed, the camera reveals, sure, he's a gruff guy at the beginning, but he's not, he had, there's no evidence that he might be a monster. But the closer we get, the more we think, oh, he has been through a lot. And it, his, his, grim countenance makes us think and he probably brought it on himself <laughs> well and of course 
uh, Poirot says both in the book and in the movie, I don't, he refuses the case specifically because he says, I don't like your face. Yeah. So right. as an audience, you have to, that has to come across. It really has to come across. Right. And so that scene in the dining car between Ratchet and Poirot was, was a very important scene because every, everything about this movie, the question of justice, the whole nine yards hinges on whether or not you feel any sympathy for Ratchet. Mm-hmm. So he can't be sympathetic, but he also has to be real. He can't be like this over-the-top kind of snidely whiplash. You know, I'm the bad guy. I'm in black. You know I'm the bad guy because I'm wearing black. He has to be real, but he, there has to be something about him that's very off-putting. So the tension in that scene and the, the cake and, oh, but you'll eat my cake. And then just it, it was a lot of really good tension there between the two of them. And you see the disgust that Poirot has. And you know, I'm, I refuse. And they, they dragged it out more than in the book, but I thought it was appropriate. Mm-hmm. because you don't have, I mean, in the book, you have every single person's saying, oh, he had the look of evil. But you, I mean, you can't do that in a movie. Everybody just keeps saying over and over, he looked really evil. You know, you got to show yeah. it. And so, no, I, I thought that scene was really well done and established well who Ratchet is and that he's unsympathetic. In, in, in some ways, it might be my favorite scene in the movie because it's a classic example of, of a director... In this case, the director is the actor, but of the director letting two actors really act. Um, they, those were two guys that they they really owned their their lines, and they there was like energy between them. There was a yeah. there was a chemistry between them as actors too. Um, and I, I, Johnny Depp is so interesting because, as an audience, most of us have a history with him, but that's usually well, often it's a bad thing, right? So where we say, oh, I can't help but see Johnny Depp or I can't help but see whoever yeah. playing that role. But in this case, there's something... Like he, even though well, we he's know... He's got a bad boy past, right? Yeah, he kind of has that bad boy past. Well, yeah. And, but as... And I, yeah, I couldn't help but think about that as I was watching, actually, when he first came on, on screen. But, but there's something about him that has that ability to play... To play... I don't want to call it darkness, but mystery, it just in the way he carries himself, the way he carries his face even. Like, he can grin in a way that is dark, in a sense. Does that mm-hmm. make sense? And yeah, they make scars and stuff, but there is a... But there he held himself in a way. Yeah, he, exactly. He held himself. He carried himself. Even, but even like there's a look about him anyway that, that makes, that fits this gangster vibe, like the high cheekbones and just like his, the way his face looks. And I mean, they did a good job upping that, right? But he also... Oh yeah, he had a swarthiness about his character as well. He was kind of swarthy. <laughs> You're saying that the guy who played Captain Jack Sparrow has... <laughs> I realize that's a, that's a shock there. <laughs> okay. Um, so I agree with you. I, I really liked that scene as well and thought there was good energy between the actors. And I kind of felt like I never saw that again in the movie. Like, so when he's interacting with the, the other you know, people on the train, I never felt a sense of suspicion on any of them, really. Like, I, I just never felt that tension. The stakes never felt very high. Do you th- well, well, why do you think that was? Either I don't know. Well, you know, one of the things we talked about before, and this, so this could be an answer to that, is that this movie required you to have a whole lot of characters. And usually in an adaptation, you'll just cut half of them out because it doesn't matter anyway, and you focus on a few and you do that well. You can't do that in this one. You have to have the 12. And so maybe there's yeah, just not enough yeah. time to do anything other than this cursory sort of 
you know, there was a point, there were a few points in the movie where I actually thought to myself, if I hadn't read the book, I wonder if I'd be confused right now. Specifically, well, do you think you'd have been really confused about the lack of uh, backstory? Yeah, just who the characters were and what their relationship was to him and, yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's, that. you know, you could see them throughout trying to give us little, little bits of reason to be sympathetic because if we don't have sympathy for the characters then in the end we don't care that they right. have a choice yeah. and in the book it's kind of easy it's easier in some ways uh, to just say why they should have why we should have sympathy right mm-hmm. they get so little screen time in a movie that has to be under two hours you know i can imagine the producer was like it has to be under two hours michelle pfeiffer is going to be in this movie write the part for her daisy ridley's the new hot actress right so she was just in star wars she's going to be in our movie she's playing mary write the part for her um and then you can you can imagine them adding all these different notes like about um do we want to do we want to address the issues of race in Agatha Christie? Um, so drop something in there about that, and uh, we want to have Willem Dafoe in it, and we want to have uh, Judy Dench in it, and Olivia Coleman in it because she's going to be the new queen in the Crown, um, and and you know all that kind of stuff. So you can imagine that as a film, as a writer, and dealing with the producers and the studios and all this, and I don't know how this happened exactly, but there are all these pressures that come into it that can affect how you write a film. And there's just not enough time for all these actors and actresses. Yeah. It should have been a three-hour Amazon series rather yeah, than I an fifty-minute film. But it's a franchise. This is IP. You know they're going to do Death on the Nile next, which they alluded to at the end, and one of my favorite parts of the movie actually. Um, that was like that was there was actually subtlety to that, which I enjoyed. This movie is not particularly subtle. It is not. Um, it does have some moments where it's subtle, but overall, it, it, subtlety is not its strongest point. Let's talk. Uh, Oh, hey, Tim, was it you that mentioned, or Angelina that mentioned Johnny Depp's coat being a nice touch? I did. Angelina loved it. I did too. And Tim, you mentioned something about when he first enters in that, like there's a fight going on and then as soon as the fight happens, he leaves. Was that you? Angelina. No, I said that. Tim no. said the thing about he won't take the best table. He wants the one in the corner. Mm, yeah. His character was well-developed. I, I, I didn't have any problem with that. Yeah, and of course we had to feel, we had to not, we had to feel suspicious about him mm-hmm. to care. And I think one of the things that's problematic about this movie, just it, sort of in the same way that it's problematic about almost every superhero movie right now, is that there's just an, a villain issue. Ooh, what do you mean, David? Most superhero movies that are made right now don't have good villains. So it becomes about these guys just proving how great they are. Yeah. Rather than having someone to really who is who is almost an equal to go up against, so yeah. you look at the Dark Knight, the Batman movie with Heath Ledger, his last role where he plays the Joker, back in two thousand seven or eight or whatever, and this is an incredibly powerful villain, right? And yeah. so it, it creates a conflict that is with high stakes and yeah. a real challenge for Batman. Too often the villain problem isn't there, and even in a movie like like Murder in the Orient Express, there's no villain problem. Because essentially the villain is done away with. And so your conflict is almost entirely interior, right? Yes. It's almost entirely how great is Hercule Poirot? Mm-hmm. And then what is that going to mean in the end? Yeah. Which know, I guess brings I, us to Poirot. Before we get to Poirot, I think we've talked about this before. I read a book called Story by Robert McKee. 
it's a fantastic book. It's basically a screenwriting book. It's learning how to screenwrite. Um, if you guys ever saw the movie Adaptation, did you guys see that? Oh, yes. I really like that. So there, there's a character in there who's Robert McKee. I mean, he's, you know, the main character in Adaptation is trying to write a screenplay. And he goes to Robert McKee's screenwriting workshop. Well, the real Robert McKee wrote this book. It is superb. But one of the things that he says in the book is basically you can almost measure the quality of a movie by measuring the quality of the villain. If you have a really great villain and your protagonist can overcome that villain, you've probably done pretty well. You know, you've like, you got to have a lot of other things fall in place, good acting, good cinematography, et cetera. But as far as the story goes, you've kind of got your story down. And I've thought about that so many times. And I've thought about, well, I'm just going to venture out here. I think I've even mentioned this on a previous podcast. I, for me, this is the number one complaint that I have against most, quote, Christian art, like contemporary Christian art. The villain is not very scary. The villain's just mm. not like, I have no fear. It's just sort of um, a puppet for evil or something like that. So anyway. Do you mean in that sense that they, they don't make evil alluring? Like they make it kind of impotent? Like and you see so you're watching and thinking, who would choose to be bad? Yeah, sort of like that. Here, I'll give you an example. There was this movie called Amazing Grace about um, Wilberforce. Yeah, I've seen that. Mm -hmm. You're going to, don't, you might ruffle some feathers. It's fine. I'll ruffle feathers. <laughs> Ooh, go for it. That on, is it going to come back? Is it going to come back on you guys, David, if I do? No, no. I mean, no. Just if you don't like the movie, just, I mean, people it's aren't. A terrible movie. Terrible. <laughs> okay. Go on. Go on. It has a great, I mean, William Wilberforce was a hero by anyone's standards, a great man. But there were two um, kind of protagonists for the slavery movement in, that were represented in the film that were in Parliament. These guys, from the first 10 seconds they were in the movie, you knew that they were just sniveling, spineless, powerless cowards, you know? And everybody knows now what an abomination slavery was. But to not be able to make those two characters powerfully evil, enticingly evil, um, they did not... Co complex? Like there's no, there was no complex? In any way, like they literally were just like kind of giggling ne'er-do-wells that were sort of talking into their um the tips of their fingers toward each other and they you know it was just like there's no fear there at all and we had to there's no there 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 was no there there and i think that so much of the reason that move the movie failed for a couple of different reasons but one of the big reasons was we never felt just like the brute instantiated intractable power of the status quo hmm. it just felt like there's a couple of guys that want to institute slavery there's like no sense of like slavery is an institution hmm. there was no sense of that whatsoever anyway so it didn't feel like he really had to overcome what he actually had to overcome exactly. so it didn't it didn't exactly and so if there's not is it, it it's kind of like flannery o'connor's redemption thing if if sin is not a real thing then redemption right. is meaningless right. so if evil is not a real thing then overcoming evil or if evil is just some some easy thing to overcome, then it's, you haven't done anything by overcoming it. Yeah, absolutely right. Hmm. And, and to tie it back into our book, 
I think part of the reason the book is satisfying is that it's a moral dilemma. It, part of the reason the book works is because of the intellectual, putting together the intellectual puzzle. But part of the reason that we talk so much about the question of justice at the end is because that part of it is so, it's a large problem to overcome. What mm. do you do in this situation? It's a, mm. it's a sizable problem to overcome. Let's, let's, let's talk about that. We, we had planned to keep this pretty short. So let's, let's jump over to that. And that'll take us, I think, to our discussion of Poirot. Because the, because the interpretation, the choices they made about the ending are very tied to some of the choices they made about Poirot. Mm-hmm. Um, so, let's, so let's talk about that. Angelina, you talked about how if there's an area that the film did not present the essence of the book, it's in the choice that they had part on making is is that correct and that was kind of the primary area that you had a problem with it right so at the beginning he he in the opening scene i think he says his line about you know right is right and wrong is wrong right and so i think okay here we go you know they pull that justice theme out let's see where they go with this and mm-hmm. um what i thought happened is that they end they had moments where i got excited i won't lie when penelope cruz says and when, when Poirot says to her, I don't know where justice is, and she says, sometimes there's a higher law, I was like, ooh, we're about to get really interesting here, yeah. right? I got excited. And then he immediately follows that up with this tear-filled scene, right, where he says, basically, sometimes you got to choose your heart over your head. And I, I groaned, and I may have also used some colorful language inside my head because I was that upset with that line. I was really upset with that line because it's what? such a cheap line, such a cheap line. Like, we're yeah. just going to take this very complex issue, and I'm going to blow it off with a cliche. Sometimes you got to follow your heart instead of your head. And so I thought that he took this philosophical question that we've all been talking about on the show and just roots the whole thing inside his own character. So it just becomes this this interior struggle for him of his heart versus his head. So what should Poirot do as opposed to should they have killed Ratchet? Right. Which, yeah, I thought the book puts both of those things together. And I think that the movie just assumes that the right thing to do is for him to die. Although I will say this, and because we talked about this earlier, and so we'll throw this out to the listeners to see if maybe I just missed the scene. But I was watching the film with someone who had not read the book. And when it was over, she said, how did they know they had the right guy? And I said, well, in the book, he's arrested and tried and gets off on a technicality. And she said, oh, well, the movie just skipped that completely. And she was upset because she said that changes everything. And that changes what I think about the ending. Yeah, but Tim and I both thought they referenced it in the movie. So we were both like sitting there like, really? Yeah, well, see, I didn't see that. And then some people on the Facebook page also said they didn't see that in, in the film. So now I feel like we have to rewatch it. I thought, I, thought they, I thought they dropped a line in saying that. Okay, if they did, I but, missed it. But it's also possible that I just assumed that they did because I fell asleep halfway through or something. <laughs> Which is, I don't David. recall falling asleep, but... I'm with David. I don't, I neither, I think I just grafted it in from my memory of the reading of the book and seeing the 74 film. Because the 74 film is, gives it lots of coverage. <laughs> hey guys. headlines from I, the Armstrong kidnapping. I just got a text uh, to my like my siblings and I have a group message and my brother just texted me guys go see murder on the Orient Express. <laughs> okay, which brother is this? Because we're gonna have words. Um, uh, no comment at the moment. Oh, I, um, I know which brother it is. Okay, I know which brother it is. Oh, okay. Um, it's the one that has extremely um, uh, 
well thought out takes on art of all kinds. And if we have a debate about it, he will definitely have a reason for, for it. Like he can debate Taylor Swift with you for hours and hours. It's okay. Not- now I'm just heartbroken. Cause I know exactly who it is. Okay, fine. All right. Um, he will okay. be getting a text from me when this is over. Well, hold on. Let me, you gotta let me talk to him first and warn him this is coming. Um, okay. So Tim, would you agree with, Angelina's assessment or is I think this was another I think this was an issue where for us it was all kind of like yeah we basically agree but it's a matter of degree (laughs) well I know that Tim did not like that line either none of us liked that well what I was going to say about that is that line is terrible and it's an example of the film in certain instances being overwritten and like I just wish that he didn't need to say I think I said this earlier. Did I say this? This is this is my biggest problem with this movie is that line right there because they did not need to have Kenneth Branagh say the line. Like they he did, did not need he didn't need to explain everything that was on his in his heart in his face and in his heart or whatever in his head and in his heart because he can do it with his face. Like I, Angelina, you had a problem with him getting a little emotional. I had less of a problem with that because he he needed to be a character for a movie who people can sympathize with and he can feel human. So I'm okay with the making him a little more emotional than he was in the book. But the, he's a good enough actor to get that complexity and to get those complications and to get that inner struggle out by just being that way on, by just acting it. He didn't need to say a terribly written line for that to come across. And he just didn't trust the audience and he didn't trust himself as an actor. Mm-hmm. I, that's what I think. But um, maybe I'm overstating that. I think that movie would have been so much more powerful if we could have, yeah, if we could have just seen the emotion and then see him present his solution to the 12, you know, because we would have then known that that emotion that he was feeling um, was him feeling the difficulty of the choice that he was going to have to present. But instead, like Angelina said, I had to choose my heart over my head. And I was like, oh, stop it. (laughs) One of the things that I'm trying to figure out is why he... So why does Poirot, in this case, choose his heart over his head? So one of the things that I thought that the movie was bringing out that, again, was problematic for me is that it was less a philosophical question about what does justice demand. And and so it doesn't bring up at all the failure of the institution, which for me personally, is a big part of this. The question is, what is justice when the institution fails? For me, I feel like that's the question that the book is asking, which I didn't think the movie asked. So what ends up being... Like Amazing Grace, apparently. Well, sure. And so uh, what ends up happening, I thought, is... So Michelle Pfeiffer makes her speech about, you know, these are good people. These are good people who just want a chance to heal and move on. They don't deserve to go to jail. So I thought then the question then becomes less a philosophical question of justice and more a philosophical question of do they deserve this mercy, right? Are they good people? And so then he tests her with the gun faint, right? And she, she passes the test. She shoots herself, not him. Therefore, she's good. And therefore, he lets them go because they're basically good people. And I also did not like the idea. Well, can I, before you, can you hold okay. that thought? Yeah. I want to I just kind of understand what you're saying there. So the What's the what are the two options that you just presented? It's not a story about whether he should have died, but it's more of a story about whether they're people who deserve to be punished. Is that what you said? Oh, it, well, happened, it happened fast. I got to admit, I wasn't. I was trying to track. 
And now well, I didn't to... just now say that. I said something similar to that this morning. Well, well what did well, you just say? I just said the question is no longer a philosophical question about what is justice, particularly what, what, is, what does justice look like when the institution fails, and becomes more a question of are they good people who deserve mercy? So you so you think that it was your you think that it was uh they should he should not have focused so much on whether they deserved mercy. Right. Because you don't think that the book focused on that. I don't think the book raises that question at all. Tim, where do you stand on that? I th- I think Angelina is right. I don't think it's a question of whether or not they deserve mercy. It seems like it's almost a question of whether or not the verdict belongs with the state or whether it stays on the train. At least that's what we talked about the most. That's what was the most intriguing. Yeah. I mean, we did, that is where we did focus the conversation for sure. And so, okay. So one of the things that I thought the movie did that was interesting and I was curious where it was going to go is a few times Paro talked about people having fractured souls and the camera shots did that. Cause there were a lot of camera shots through beveled glass. So you yeah. saw yep, yep. multiple I'm glad, I was gonna, I'm glad you mentioned that. That's so that I, I thought that was actually real well done. Like these are characters who are all torn up inside and they're all fractured. So I liked that idea. Um, but then I thought the resolution that the movie offered was when Michelle Pfeiffer said, these people deserve to heal. And then we see at the end, the countess is pouring out her drugs and we're supposed to believe now that she, she's healed because now Re- Cassetti's dead, which I mean, that's just not true. The truth is that killing Cassetti only fractures their soul more. So I, I felt like that was just a cheap resolution to a very complicated question. So, but doesn't, I, I think this really is a matter of degree because I agree and I disagree with you. Doesn't the part where she's pouring out the drugs happen before he gives his verdict, though? What before? No, it's no, after he, he decides, but before they've told the audience. Well, because he he okay. says that thing on the train and all the people are there, and then he walks off at the end. He hasn't told them yet what he's going to do. And then because the last minute he says what he's going to do, and then he walks off the train. Either way, the idea about them being healing and stuff like that. Um, the her pouring out the drugs, terrible decision. I think they were trying. I think they were actually trying to get after something else there. Oh, really? What? I think I I kind of read that like the thing's over. We don't need to worry about having these anymore. Like we don't have to have our cover anymore. I re- I thought that they were dumping them out because those were a cover to oh. get him poisoned. Oh, is that how you read it, Tim? I thought I thought she takes the drugs because she can't cope with the pain of what happened. And now that there's resolution, she can stop being a drug addict. Yeah, that's that's what I thought. Oh, okay. Well, I mean, yeah, that's just a matter. I mean, I don't I don't know what they actually were trying to do there, obviously. But I re- I still yeah I just read that as they were they're like our cover is over. We don't need to worry about this anymore. Okay. But well, I, either I, I way, could be wrong. Yeah. They, either way, the what they did there, they rushed. It's an example of them. And it was rushed. I agree. Are very rushed, and they're not. There's not enough. There's no there there with them for it for it to feel for us to feel anything for them yeah and therefore it makes it very difficult i don't agree that the book doesn't talk about doesn't doesn't emphasize the idea of whether or not they deserve to be given mercy, mercy. Yeah. to be let go i that's basically what i thought about that was the biggest oh. thing for me in the book but that doesn't mean that you're not right that they sh- that they focus too much on the wrong thing like you can st- it can still be I can still have noticed that in the in the book so f- at least I'll put it this way I understand why when they adapted it for the screen 
they push that because I felt that tension when I read the book. That doesn't mean it's the primary thing that should have been pushed in the movie. Does that make sense? Yeah. No, I would agree with that. So like I get what they did, but then they it in doing that it left out other questions that are even more interesting. I ho- I don't know if that makes sense. Right. And I think one of the things I said this morning that I have neglected to say now was also part of what they did in, in, I think, in making the struggle be his own personal internal struggle was they focused on his own tension between the ideal and the real, right? Like he wants to live in the ideal of how things should be. And now he's up against the real, which doesn't fit so neatly. So he chooses to go with the real instead of the ideal. Mm -hmm. Um, And again, I thought that that, I just, I thought that that just placed the whole question so subjectively inside of him. They definitely were trying to do a lot with the, like they kept using words like ideal and fracture and things like that. So they were definitely talking about this. They were get, at least getting at this idea of harmony, right? Right. But Which just, I was initially really excited about when I saw that they were bringing that out. Yeah. And, but they just didn't execute their best intentions, I feel like, in a way that was precise enough. I think the word I used earlier was that it was mm-hmm. very imprecise. There was a lot of imprecise writing, imprecise characterization. And-, and yes, and listening to you talk about it, it did make me more sympathetic to it. Like, like maybe they really were trying for all the things I wanted there and they just failed because like, the tension between the ideal and the real, right? Time constraints, <laughs> money constraints, actors' egos, all these kinds of things. And we had talked about this morning too, you brought up the point that Kenneth Branagh, has a, he's a performer and so he needed to milk some of these scenes just because of who he is, which I wasn't crazy about. Yeah. So Tim, I want to ask you about that because I mentioned earlier that it felt like, you know, this is, this is his passion project. Well, apparently that's, that's what it seems like from what I've read. Um, he's wanted to do this for a long time. He's very committed to the character and to Agatha Christie's interpretation of him. That's why his mustache is so large because she hated the mustaches of other versions, like especially that 1974 version. And he really wanted it to be, she said it had to be the biggest mustache in England and that there should be layers in it and stuff like that. And so he, that's why he, he does that. He, they went after the biggest mustache in England. (laughs) So it's a, there's a big, he has this love of this character, but it feels like, this is a guy who is a stage actor. He's a, you know, he's, that's where his cut his teeth. I mean, he's been in movies, but it seems like in his sort of heart, in his essence, he is a stage guy. And, um, it, that comes across here. Like there's, he soliloquizes. What's the word? Soliloquies. So soliloquizes. I I like soliloquies. So he soliloquizes a lot. Soliloquies days. That is going to be my autobiography. (laughs) D-A-Z-E. Yeah. Um, And he, he, uh, that, that comes out a lot in the movie. Do you think that, that he was able to capture the spirit or essence of Poirot in doing that? Because obviously he's trying, he's got to present basically a whole book of internal struggle or internal clue seeking that happens in the book so do the soliloquies and does his performance capture that or did you did you not enjoy it well i liked his performance i don't know that it has a whole lot to do with poirot of the book the poirot of the book strikes me as mildly taciturn you know he's he's certainly not gabby i don't know that he's a silent man either but it strikes me as he kind of leans toward Taciturnity is that a word? Um, <laughs> if not, it should be. It should be. But I agree with you, David. It seems like Kenneth Branagh is very concerned. He, he 
wanted to play to his strength. His strength is stage acting and stage actors in this theater is a verbal medium. And he played this movie with verbal panache and I agree with you. It was over, it was overwritten. I think it could have been, I think we could have seen the acting more on his face and less through his mouth. Which a stage actor is used to, hmm. I mean, you're farther away, right? Yeah. So Johnny Depp is, Johnny Depp does a great job with fewer, he can, he, well, right. he's been in movies that are very overwritten. He's overperformed before. Most, most great actors have had some times when they do that, but he also understands how to use the camera, right? Mm-hmm. Which is, which can get right in your face. It can, you know, you can have these tight shots, but a stage actor is dealing primarily with the language because you're farther away. I mean, you still have to use your face and your body, but right. it's different. Like a, cine- a movie actor makes their money by, 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 by their face. Whether, I mean, I don't mean like by having a beautiful face, I mean by using your face. An expressive face, face. Yeah. yes. Right. Yeah. And, and maybe that's where Brenna, you know, Brenna wants to be Henry V on St. Crispin's Day. He wants to be Hamlet giving the to be or not to be, right? I agree with that. And so, there, there were, and I don't have the words for this, but something felt off to me when there would be those close-ups on Brenna's face. Right? Like what he was doing with his eyes. Sometimes I'd be like, what is he trying to show me with his eyes? Yeah. Yeah, it felt... It felt like... Well... It felt, I don't, I don't want to, I don't really know what I'm talking about because I'm not a film actor. I don't have the words for it. All I can say is like, it was curious to me. Yeah. Like there's sometimes like I've studied a lot of film, but I know a lot more about writing and directing and things like that than I do about the art of acting. And I've been on, I've been in stage plays and things like that, but I've never been in a movie where I had to act. And so judging it, I feel a little bit like, you know, like someone judging like I like if I was judging LeBron James right now. Like I've played a little basketball. I'm okay for an average person at shooting a basketball, for example. But I really don't have any right to judge. Maybe not LeBron. Like who's someone in the second tier? I really don't have any right to judge that guy for his, you know, shooting form when he really makes about forty percent of them. You know, so um, well, or, or baseball maybe is the better. What's that? I don't know if that's true. Just because you can't do what he does doesn't mean that you can't like compare him to his peers and say he is lacking or he's superior. Well, that's true. And there are, there are principles that I can, you know, like I can say that guy obviously needs to, you know, he's, he's, his form is off. He needs to get, yeah. get his hands in the right spot or whatever. Yeah. Um, so Tim said something this morning that I, I thought was really interesting that the way that they staged the revelation scene, uh, that it was very much like Branna performing to an audience. So they, they really played up the idea of Pora as the performer. So he's performing this end to them. You, David, contrasted that to another version in which they are tightly compact in the car and he's moving in and out yeah, that, of them. That was actually Tim. Yeah, he, he can. Oh, that was Tim said that. Okay. Um, and that there was a lot of tension there, which is lost with the performance scene and then i said that well he ends up framing the whole movie with two performances then because the movie opens with the same thing the wailing wall scene where he is he's performing right he shows off what he can do and then he shows off again what he can do um i'm not really sure what i think about that Uh, i i did not feel a lot of tension in that scene where he's saying you know you did it no you did it i just i think that's part of the reason why i keep going back to the word boring it's like where was the tension i didn't feel it I actually never felt like anyone was a suspect. Yeah, I just think that that's the... 
I mean, I think you're right to be critical of that. And I also think it might just be the story. Hmm. Yeah, it might be. Like, I think there's just limitations to how exciting it can be without completely changing it. Like if they'd had a battle at the end or a little gunfight or something, and they wouldn't have just, <laughs> he wouldn't have just given a presentation of his choices. Like the idea that the detective is just sitting in front of a bunch of people who just murdered a dude and just giving him their ideas and they're not going to do anything to him. Like the, the greatest tension in this story that, that Agatha Christie doesn't give us is, or at least the question that goes unresolved for me is why do none of these people just get rid of Hercule Poirot? Yeah. <laughs> like he's the only guy that can solve this thing. Why does someone not just push him out of the train? Because they're not murderers, David. I think that's the idea, right? They're not murderers. They're innocent people. I mean, so then maybe they don't deserve to be. <laughs> now, um, one thing I did not. Okay, so but here's but, another but, thing. But my point is just that that's the tension that could be there, and so the idea that he's just standing there talking to a bunch of people who did this. No, you're right, and you're right that that's in the book. That's there is no tension about his danger in the book. You're absolutely right. So our main character um, has no risk. No, even in Murder Miss Advertise, when we talked about that, Lord Peter is at, in danger. So yeah, that's not in this in this book at all. That's right. But so one thing that was actually one of these moments where I thought the plot didn't make sense. And so maybe you guys can correct me here. He makes the point that Ratchet is drugged, right? Which, and that's like the book. So they go in and he's unconscious and they stab him and they're supposed to stab him in the dark so that nobody really knows who killed him. In the movie, he's conscious, he goes to fight against them. They hold his arms down. They cover his mouth. And I was like, but wait, you drugged him. You said he was drugged. So I, I thought about that at the time. And I think what they're just going for is that he was like, not, he was drugged enough that he couldn't fight any or whatever, but he was like alert enough that he could see what was going on. Like he, but I thought that made it so much more gruesome. Did that was holding it. him down while they stab him is very gruesome than the way that it is in the book. Yeah. I think, yeah, I mean, what do you think it's about It's much that? more passionately vengeful when, when Mother Hubbard takes the knife to him. It's much more vengeful. Yeah, well, but I mean, yeah, but in the book, we get no, nothing of that. And it nothing is, of that. But it's a, it is a dark thing to do. It is a dark thing to do. It is a dark thing to do. You and so I'm not necessarily, yeah. You can't not, you can, I, think, I think it would be doing a disservice to the act, to the audience and to the story to just pretend that it's not a at minimum an extremely complex and dark thing to the that they did yeah i don't disagree with that I mean, that was one of the things pd james says about agatha christie is that you get the sense when when a book of hers is over that the victim can just stand up and wipe off the blood and walk off i mean she does very much make it as sanitized as she can in the book and so i guess i'm okay with them deciding to play that up. But if you play up the gruesomeness of the crime, then you're going to have to deal with, then the question about whether it was right even becomes even more complex. No, you're absolutely right. Yeah, that's where, it, yep. Say that again. You, you have to, just to finish Angelina's thought, you have to meet the gruesomeness of the crime with some sort of a verdict that is right. parallel, that is equally weighted. Yep, yeah. Or at least you at least have to have a conversation about it. Yeah. I wonder. I do wonder how much of this, like, if there was a director's cut, is there more? Are there more scenes that that could, you know, twenty minutes more that could be could flesh this out? Yeah, I wonder. And I also wonder, like, if when they do Death on the Nile, is there going to be? Or will they have learned some things? And will they be able to tell a little bit more of a precise, uh, action-filled story? That, and I don't mean action like there has to be a gunfight and all that. I just mean with that that gives us the forward motion that you need to create tension. 
um, or at least the stakes. They, and I think, you know, it, it, maybe it won't be quite as lavish. It'll probably still be somewhat lavish because of their skill as filmmakers, but that'll be, I'm interested to see what they do with that. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Yeah. I'm interested as, as well. I did not know that it was going to be a franchise. I just thought that was a cute little thing at the end when it, <laughs> they segued into death of the Nile because um, in that book, he does actually reference the Orient Express that he was just on that case. So I just thought that was cute. I didn't realize it was, I didn't realize they were setting me up for a sequel. <laughs> now, I don't know if they've, if they're going to film it or if they have started filming it or anything. I, I just read that they, that was the plan, I suppose. Well, I'm sure it'll depend on what kind of money they take in, right? Yeah, well, yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> if, it, if it flops, I'm, they're probably not going to probably not going to do it again. Although you never know. Um, all right, let's, let's kind of go with some final thoughts here. Anything you guys want to, you want to say as we depart for David, I don't again, know. I just don't the joy of the book for me is such an intellectual puzzle solving sort of joy and I think that part of the reason that the movie falls short is that the movie has to fall short it has to because it has to transform itself into offering a completely different form of delight which mm. is gosh I'm not sure what the movie's form of visual visual yeah i think that's like the the for me that's the strongest aspect of the movie but i would think that kenneth Branagh was shooting for something more than just a visual pleasure hmm. i just didn't i just didn't find that i didn't find anything else in the movie i, I like the movie okay but i just feel like that's a really tough book to make into a movie yeah I think Tim just named the thing that I've been struggling with because uh, that is also how I felt about it. That the point of the book is it's an intellectual puzzle. And so I'm disappointed not to see that in the film at the same time that I say to myself, but that would be the world's most boring movie. You can't actually do that. <laughs> so, I mean, I, yeah, I don't even know what to think about. I mean, I agree with him. If it's going to be a good movie, then it can't be the book. Yeah. Yeah. In some ways to make it truly a, puzzle solving thing you'd have to take the tact of david fincher when he made zodiac i don't know if you guys have seen that yes that, that is widely considered the greatest like unsolved looks you know crimes puzzle movie of the last of the century so good. some people consider it the best movie since 2000 and it's but but it's so dark and the stakes are the stakes for the guy who's trying to solve it are there throughout the whole thing. And even though you never see who did it, obviously, or whoever's, whoever is after him, they're still hovering all around all the time. And that's just, that's not available to these filmmakers for this story. Yeah. And that's, I think that's one of the key areas where um, a book can do things that a movie can't, and a movie can do things that a book can't. And, um, you know, and that's why it's so curious to me, like the decision-making process, why this Agatha Christie novel, this is admittedly a very large cast of characters, tons of clues, all internal action. It's just, it's a hard movie. Yeah. Okay. So Brandon says he wants to do Death in the Nile, but the, but I quote, the public will have to tell me if they fancy seeing it. Ah, so yes. Cha-ching. Okay. I did my part. <laughs> I bought my matinee ticket. That's more than most of them get out of me. 
Uh, Angelina, do you have any any other final thoughts you want to end here? End with? No, no. I think I think what I, I think what Tim said is right. And so I think I think even though I said boring, I'm sort of sympathetic to the challenge of of it. Like it just sort of had to be boring. Yeah, yeah. yeah it had to be. It's doomed to be. So, Murder on the Orient Express in the first weekend was third in the money. It made twenty eight point two million dollars uh, behind Thor Ragnarok. Thor Ragnarok, which made fifty six point six million dollars, um, but is a superhero movie, and of course was going to make more money. So, um, not an intellectual puzzle to solve. No, but apparently an incredible movie. Ninety two percent on Rotten Tomatoes. I'm not dissing it. Um, all right. Well, let's let's um, let's wrap it up. I guess. What's that? What was number two in the box office? Oh, uh, something that's terrible. It looks like something that's got like Daddy's Home too. <laughs> oh, I don't even know what that is, and don't want to know. That's the one with um, uh, Mel Gibson and. Uh, Wait, he's still alive. Yeah, Mel Gibson <laughs> and Will Ferrell and um, uh, John Lithgow and Mark Wahlberg, and they it's two guys and their dads, and they for whatever reason they're all home for Christmas together or something. I don't know. It's t- it's supposed to be terrible, but you put those four people in a movie, I guess people will go see it. Right. Right. <laughs> um. All right. Well, this has been fun. Thanks for thanks for uh, sticking with it today, guys. <laughs> let's absolutely let's, let's let's return to our fetal positions. <laughs> it's the episode in which Angelina learns she's an improv actor, not a movie actor. I would die to have to do the same take a million times. Yeah, can you can you imagine shooting the same scene for three straight days? No. I was watching an interview with some of the actors on Stranger Things, these kids, and they were talking about how one scene, one three-minute scene they filmed for two days. Oh, my goodness. Nope. I would probably, like, almost be violent with whoever blew it. (laughs) I delivered my line. I delivered my line. Well, the thing is, a lot of the times, it's not about someone blowing it. It's about, let's let's shoot this with a different kind of angle. Let's think about it differently. Different lighting, different shot. Yeah, say this, like, that was great. Say it a different way now. Or this was great. Or you stand, let's just move you slightly here. It's like, you know, there's so much money involved. You got to get the perfect thing. And you got ed- the editing bay is where so much happens. So much storytelling happens. So I don't know how they options. create any energy in that. I just, it would suck it right out of me. I could do a stage that's play, but I don't why they get do a movie. That's why they get paid the big bucks. Because it's yeah. a different kind of thing. You know, that's why I'm always impressed with people who can go from TV or movies to Broadway and vice versa. Yes, I, that makes sense. That's a very different experience. No doubt. Okay, well, uh, next week we will be starting on Twelfth Night, Act One of Twelfth Night. This will be where Tim's theater chops really uh, get tested. He's going to have to bring expectations bring are high, Timothy. They are. Uh, there <laughs> as is high as your voice. <laughs> as we said, there is a Trevor Nunn uh, movie. There's lots of movie versions, but we're going to use the Trevor the Trevor Nunn version to kind of like be our baseline movie adaptation one for comparison's sake. Um, there are lots of play versions out there. Uh, I, I got a new Penguin version. There's a bunch of new ones that have been released recently. Um, so you, you can find them on Amazon pretty cheap. Um, and then they're also just, they're, they're basically free on the internet if you want to just find one there as well. So hopefully you'll read along with us. Uh, we ha- it's been a long time since we've done a book this old. <laughs> so um, it'll be interesting to talk about the idea. Tim, you mentioned earlier wanting to talk about the idea of objectivity and subjectivity in art. And I think that's going to be something that we're going to be able to talk about because of how long Shakespeare has been part of the canon. So um, I think that'll be, that'll be fun to to address a little bit. So, all right. Uh, With that, 
for Angelina Stanford, for Tim McIntosh, and for all of us here at the Cersei Institute, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening to Close Reads on the Cersei Institute. Uh, Institute. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening to this amazingly hosted show on the Cersei Institute Podcast Network. It's past your bedtime. You are forgiven. <laughs> it's, I've done this several times today. <laughs> Uh, anyway, the point is, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time. <laughs> We're getting worse with each take. We are, yeah, yeah.